0: Uh, hello, uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Joss Norris, I'm a comedian, and this is an interview with my pal Sarah Shawman for Comedy Bloggerdy. Uh You can you can follow me on Twitter if you like, at Joss Norris. I've just passed the 1000 mark. Do you want to be 1004? Have a click. <laughs> or, or you can go on uh, josnorris.co.uk, there's lots of information there, and sometimes I put up funny pictures. Uh, and we're going to chat about... Uh, It's about comedy, really, and life, aren't we? Both of those things. Mainly those two. So uh, strap in. Strap in your ear rolls. It'll be fun.
1: So, Jos, how did you get into comedy?
0: Okay. Uh, I I will answer that. I will answer that. But, firstly, I, I I feel it's important for people listening to this to understand the context of this interview. Because basically, and, I, and I'm going to go into detail. So basically, I, I I mean I've been I've been annoying you now for three years for three years about doing one of these interviews because I uh you you came and saw my show three years ago, and and you went wow that was great well done really cool do you want to do an interview and I I did one of your your new act interviews which was great fun, and then I got carried away, and I noticed you did longer interviews with. Uh, with with bigger acts, and I said, oh, well, I'll I'll do one of those now. And you went, well, you know, when when you're ready, when you're ready. Uh, and basically, I've spent the three years since just insisting every time I saw you that I do one. First, because I thought it was funny, and it sort of wound you up, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is fun, this is fun. And then I think actually took it to the point where I, it, it, I was genuinely quite upsetting you, <laughs> and I think you were genuinely really annoyed uh, that I did this every time. And then eventually I learned my lesson and I stopped. And now finally, after three years, either I've worn you down, which might have happened, I'm quite persuasive, or, uh, <laughs> or something's happened and you've, you've got to the point where you've gone, yeah, yeah, I'll do I'll do one now. I don't know which it is. But honestly, I've set this as a career goal for the last three years. This has been one of the main things I've been excited about doing. And I was thinking about it and I thought, thank thank God I'm doing Edinburgh. Because if I wasn't, having done this... And ticked this off the list of like that's one thing to aim for. I wouldn't know what to do next. That's you know. So what I'm saying is, you, I mean you've you've done you've done Coogan, you've interviewed Coogan, Vegas, Johnny, <laughs> and who else? Doctor Jack Whitehall, Doctor Brown, all of them. But what I'm saying is, technically, technically, purely in terms of time, I think this is the most anticipated interview that you've ever recorded even though I mean I'm the only person who's anticipating it but it's been a long time I'm very excited uh so so thanks for having me what was the question I'll answer it
1: how did you get into comedy
0: Uh, oh (laughs) we hit it all about comedy (laughs) oh okay so uh basically I, I went to uni I went to UEA in Norwich uh to do to do english lit and i went there thinking i would be either a a novelist or a playwright or a serious actor those are my because i wrote a a trilogy i was 17 i wrote a trilogy of plays about the apocalypse um and they were awful they were awful and i've lost them now and i really want to find because the third one was never staged i staged the first one and it was about me uh going mad and eating my own godson the day before the apocalypse and uh with jam <laughs> loads of jam. but it was really it was really bleak it was horrible and t- really terrible uh and then the sequel was about uh just a mad woman falling in love with me uh just because at 17 i was like that, that'd be nice uh and then so i went to uni with this ambition of like yeah i'll do i'll do serious writing and then over the course of of three years just thought, actually that's that's a terrible idea i don't think that's what i'm what i'm good at but basically i was at so so uea and uh, I, I ran into John Britton the other day, who is uh, who is a playwright now, uh, and he, he used to do stand up. He now he's now a, a writer, uh, and
1: and directed John Kearns' Edinburgh show last year.
0: Yes, yes, correct. He's he's done a lot of things. He's 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 a disgraced former Cartoon Network writer. He's done that, um, and that's that's an in joke that he'll get. And but actually, now to random people, it just sounds like I'm just being mean about him. He's not disgraced uh but essentially he was doing stand up at uh at u e a and the other day he saw me and said, Why how come in every interview you say that John Kearns got you into stand up and I was like oh, i 'm sorry, it 's just because you know he he won an award so people know <laughs> people know the name, so it sounds good if I say that and he was like i've i've done things, and I was like, I know I know it's just easier it's just easier so today I promised him in this interview I would set the record straight.
1: Uh, how many people have you promised to set the record straight in this interview
0: d- 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 dozens this is this interview is my chance to just clear up everything <laughs> absolutely everything uh so john Britton actually <laughs> was the
1: first. professionally
0: yeah yeah just everything in my, yeah yeah no i mean i'm not going to go into my personal life here and start trying to sort that out as well that's that's time for another interview uh or maybe not but i
1: wouldn't call that an interview call <laughs> that's, that's, a, yes, uh,
0: <laughs> that's therapy. Um, no, John Britton, I wrote some radio sitcoms, basically, for the UEA student radio station. And they were awful. They were absolutely awful. They were about two rival laundrettes on opposite sides of the street. Uh, and it was called Inner Spin. Uh, <laughs> and I, I played I played myself. Uh, and John Britton played a Scottish laundrette manager called Clive. Uh, and, uh, and he said, I mean, they were awful, but they were sort of fun. So he said, these are quite good. Do you want to try and do stand-up? I run this comedy club. Uh, and I went there and tried it, and like, like I said, I've, I've been trying to sort of write and perform for years up to this point, and had never really tried to do both at the same time, except for that one play about me eating my godson covered in jam, which didn't feel right for me. Uh, and then it was, it, it, as soon as you suddenly, I don't know, it was one of those things where suddenly you do it, and then you think, oh, this is this is good. This is suddenly something that feels like I'm good at uh i wasn't it took years before i was good at it but like you get it, it it's one of those things stand up where you do it for the first time and you go oh actually this 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 like this i like uh so john kearns was another one of the people involved in that club as was tom moran who is the one that doesn't get talked about very much uh he, he lives in devon now and he writes uh he writes comedy novels about time travel which are very good uh i've, re- I've only read one of them but it was great uh so these guys ran this little comedy club and we, we just sort of fostered a little kind of, a little scene, a little tiny scene in Norwich. And then eventually I thought, oh, I'll go to London, try and do it properly. That's that's how I got into it. How long are the answers usually in these interviews? I forget.
1: You've listened to the podcast. Yeah, I know,
0: but, uh, but I mean, well, I guess it's as long as they, they have to talk about it, isn't it? I mean, I could go on. Should I?
1: <laughs> what was your first gig like?
0: Oh, good. Well, that follows on quite neatly from the last question, so that's good. I was worried that the next question would really kind of hit the nail on the head of that first, and I'd have to completely go on off in a different direction because there's more I could say about that. But that next question <laughs> opens up that door, so let's 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 go on.
1: Thank you. That's
0: all right. No, they're well-written questions. They were, so far it's well-sequenced. So far, you're going chronologically, which is a really good way of structuring anything. Um, not always if you've seen Memento, but anyway, uh, my, my first gig, I did, right, the first gig, it was interesting because like I, I, I sometimes wonder what it would have been like if I'd started doing comedy in London on the proper kind of open mic circuit that, that exists here, because in Norwich there isn't like a comedy circuit, we just did our own gigs in the pub in front of friends, and that meant that like by the time I did move to London, I felt like I'd already worked out that I really wanted to do it because sometimes the open mic thing is sort of it's it's kind of horrible because there's nobody there and it's all quite sort of uh, judgmental at times uh, but doing your first gig just in a pub in front of friends is just really nice like i came away from that first gig thinking like oh i'm a really good comedian uh now my first gig right i remember i i wore a suit i put because i thought i'm a stand up comedian now i just, I, just, I really went with it i was like i'm now a stand up comedian I hadn't even done a gig yet but i was like i will i will wear a suit and tie and I continued doing that for, for about two years. Like every gig I did in Norwich, I wore a suit and tie for. And I continued doing that when I moved to London. Like every open mic gig I did with like six people there, like five comedians and then two actual members of the public. And I was there in a suit and tie like Michael McIntyre. And then eventually I thought, this is, this is silly. But I went in a suit and tie to my first ever gig. And my first joke, I, I got on stage and I said, uh, my, my socks have Thursday written on them. How cool is that? Brought the house down, <laughs> absolutely brought the house down. Uh, in hindsight, I wouldn't do it again. That joke. Uh, I'll be honest. I don't know what I found funny about it at the time, but that was the first ever joke I told on stage. Uh, and then I did some more. I did some stuff about James Blunt because that felt like a, that felt like a good target for humor. This was in 2008. Remember, so uh, he was he was a relatively fresh target. And then I did some stuff about. Um, what would what would norwich be like at school if you went to school with him i don't remember any of it like everything i did in the first sort of year or two while i was at uni i i don't think i would go anywhere near any of that material anymore but what was nice about it like i was saying is that like you you already have this ready made audience of just your friends that are sat there so it gives you it, it gives you this false confidence in that like i i remember when i left I was like, yeah, I'm the king. I'm the king of this, but I can do comedy. I've got comedy sorted. I'm going to go to London and then do it, and it's going to be great. And then you get there and realize, oh, it's really hard, and there are there are loads of people doing it, and they're all really good, and I don't know anything. But that confidence that it gives you of like spending a while just trying to develop your sense of who you are in front of friends, I think helps because it means by the time you get here and you're in the midst of, oh, God, it's it's tricky. It's really tricky. It means I already had in my head this thought, but I know I really like it, and I know that I can be good if I really work hard, and I think that gives you a big thing to be able to go into it and say i I've got enough drive there, I think to keep doing this, even though it's suddenly much harder than it has been uh so yeah, I think those early ones i mean I was awful i'd love I would love to see videos there must be videos. there's one video of me doing the Chortle student comedy competition in two thousand and eight, and i i can't I can't watch it. I really can't watch it because it's horrendous. But uh I mean I mean I think that was the first gig that I'd ever done not in front of friends. So th- that's a learning curve. But I mean all that kind of thing of spending a while just developing a little community around it is really nice in terms of just getting your head in the right space of going, "Oh, I like comedy and I care about it." So if it does become difficult, which inevitably it it does as you as you try and work harder at it, you you care enough about it to to keep going.
1: So how often did you start gigging after your first gig?
0: Um I really like that it's it's really sequential your your there's never there's never any back and forth in your interviews. It's never like um like ha ha or like yeah it's just it's just next question. It's always just bashing through. <laughs> uh I mean that in a in a in the most positive way. It's very uh it's very efficient.
1: You wait, all this time and then you start criticizing the interview <laughs>
0: after 3 years. But I've I've just got you to comment I've never heard anybody do that in in all my three years. I've never heard anybody get you to.
1: I have commented Have, you before. You? have you?
0: Oh well, i oh, I feel less uh, less special now. What was what was the question?
1: How often did you start gigging after your first gig?
0: After that first one uh, in Norwich, I it was it was very irregular. We'd do one like once every three months or something, just whenever we felt like it. We thought we'd put another another gig on, which meant that. It, Basically, it just meant that you got really complacent, like you'd just do the same material three months later, and it wouldn't have changed at all because you'd had no opportunity to actually work on it. But nobody cared because you were at uni, and nobody's really, like, there's a free night of comedy on, so everyone just goes and enjoys it anyway. So it was a very irregular thing for a while. Uh, so after after coming down from Norwich, came down to London in 2011 to think, right, I'll try and do do comedy. And then suddenly you, realize, you meet comedians and they say, yeah, I gig every day, and then... Uh, and then at first I was I, like, you, I was sort of aware that that must happen at some point. Like professional comedians must gig every day, but I'd been gigging every few months in Norwich, and suddenly I thought, oh god, you've got to do it all the time. And I, I, I hated that for a long time. And uh, and you in particular, you used to give me uh, <laughs> reprimands. You'd you'd be like, you should gig more. And then I said, no, there's no. What's the point? I said, what's the point of gigging often? And then you said to get better and improve and meet people. And I went, that sounds rubbish. That sounds like a waste of time. Uh, So I would, at first I think I was quite resistant. I was like, I don't don't want to do all these gigs. Because so many of them, well, I've been talking to other comedians about this. And they say that the whole point of open mic, the whole open mic circuit, because that's where you start when you come down and you try and do these open mic gigs. And the whole point of them is that a lot of them are kind of a bit of a struggle. Like They're often in really remote bits of London and there's not many people there. My mum came to see me do a gig in Westbourne Park in 2011 uh, and there were five people in the audience and I was doing five minutes or or just one of the most I'd I'd moved I'd staked quite a lot on it I thought I'd go to London and do it and then my mum came to see me do this tiny gig in this pub and I remember thinking what am I doing because this is this is where do I go but that's the whole point of it is that it's hard and as long as you do still have that voice that says I, I want to do it, so I'm going to keep working. Then you get through it. So the whole point of open mic is like, oh, this is depressing and horrible. I wish I could do this, but in an environment where it's really nice and I have fun. So then you keep working and then you get there. So eventually I was like, right, I'll just gig all the time then. Uh, and and at your, at your uh, what's, the, what's the word? Recommendation. You just said, you said gig all the time. And then I did. I did. Uh, and eventually I've never, I've very rarely gigged every day of the week. That's not often happened, because I do think, like, you meet the comedians where where that's it. They they gig every day of the week, and then and then there's nothing else. And I always feel I, w- I would hate that. I would hate for that to be what I, what I ended up doing. Because I think, like, you have to have something, A, something to write about, which is your life. You've got to have a life to write about. And, B, you've also just got to have something else to go to so that you don't get disheartened with it all, and you don't think, like, oh, I just spend every day traveling around london on the tube or driving up and down the country and doing these gigs i think you have to have something that you really enjoy you've got to go to go to music gigs i'm going to see yes next week can't wait absolutely can't wait they're doing three of their best albums
1: but it depends at what stage in your career you are and what kind of comedian you are what kind of performance you do and it's not just a case of gigging all the time because you have to take some time to go and see other comedians and watch them perform and see what those environments are like so if you're just starting out you have to assess what kind of act you are so with your case it was good for you to gig a lot at that point and then that has helped you now exactly
0: well I mean also I mean you you it's easy to forget that like trying to be involved in the comedy world and, and get somewhere in the comedy world isn't necessarily a, a case of just you gig all the time. Like there's also, like you say, you, you you can just go and watch stuff and that's still learning a lot about, you know, like, I mean, obviously if you gig a lot, then you watch a lot anyway. I went to Richmond Park with some friends of mine the other week, just switched off for a day. Lovely. Had a little face off with a with a deer. They have stags in Richmond Park and I stood a few metres from one. Have you seen
1: any hens?
0: <laughs> what? Oh, yeah. Very good. Very good. (laughs) You go to Richmond Park, there's loads of lads running around with, like, (laughs) pussy patrol T-shirts. Horrible, inflatable, whatever. Horrendous. But, no, a genuine stag. Have you seen The Queen? The film The Queen. There's that bit where the Queen, Helen Mirren, is in the park, and she sees a stag, and she just stands there staring at it. And I think it's a... I don't know what it means. Something to do with Diana... In the context of the film, it's, I don't know, it's it's like, it's the moving bit of the film. But that happened to me in Richmond Park. I just stood and looked at this stag. About 10 minutes, we faced off. And then my friends went, come on, we're going to the cafe. And then I went to the cafe. But that was, you know, that's an example. Why am I talking about this? I can't remember. Oh, no, that's an example. Yeah, you switch off sometimes. You switch off sometimes. But, you know, it's. You, you can say to yourself, "Okay, I'm going to gig loads this week," or you can say to yourself, oh, "I'm I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm going to gig less." But you've always got to have your brain working, and you've always got to be aware of of things comedy wise, and go and either watch stuff or just be just always be thinking. Always be thinking. That's my <laughs> that's my motto. Always think, and then uh, and then and then you'll do all right. So I gigged, I gigged as often as I could. Nowadays, I just I gig as often as I'm asked to or as often as I feel like there's something I really need to gain from gigging. I think the worst thing is to is to gig for the sake of gigging, because that means that you're you're not necessarily learning anything from it. You're not if you're not workshopping a particular bit or if you're not specifically trying to try out a particular idea or trying to meet with a certain group of people. If you're just doing it because you think, oh, I need to do a gig, then you fall out of love with it and suddenly it becomes this functional thing. Uh, and you feel like, oh, I've just got to go and do it and leave, and you get nothing from it. I think that's that's when you're in real danger. And when when it's earlier on, I think you need to have certain things like that in order to keep you going and keep you caring about it. But it gets to a stage where I think the worst thing is to gig out of some sense of obligation and like, oh, I've just got to go and gig. But as long as you keep creating reasons for yourself where you're saying, I, I, I need to come up with this now, I need to workshop this, or I need to get this out of this idea then I'll, I'll just gig as often as I feel like I need to do that. Or when someone asks me to, because it's lovely to be asked. I'll gig as often as I'm asked, unless I'm busy. <laughs> and then I won't. <laughs> but I mean, sometimes sometimes, sometimes I've been asked to gig and I've been busy and I've changed my plans so I can do it. Sometimes I'll, I've, I cancelled a dinner party the other day. I moved it because I said, yeah, I'd like to do that gig.
1: A dinner party that you were hosting or that you were going to?
0: a dinner party i was hosting and i felt that was important i felt if i were going to the dinner party it would be a shame to cancel it because it, then that's it i've missed a dinner party
1: had you already decided on the menu uh
0: no no that was a crucial uh, crucial thing had i decided on the menu and bought the stuff it would have been a different question entirely but as it was there was a week to go and i thought right i've i'm not too invested in this dinner party moment i'm, I'm going to push it back a week and host this gig and then and the, and if you're interested listeners the dinner party was a great success I made a frittata a lovely frittata because one of one of my guests couldn't eat starch and I did my research and starch is in everything everything's got starch in it. potatoes bread pasta rice you can't eat rice if you can't eat starch so I was in a real uh pickle a real pickle and then but then I found this recipe for a frittata made it and even my starch loving guests everybody else said this is lovely and I'm glad you went with it and my starch uh not phobic what's the word for allergic to my starch my starch intolerant guest was just very appreciative lovely evening (laughs) if anybody wants to come over for a dinner party anytime then you're very welcome if you do think you might enjoy it feel free to get in touch and I will sort of I will vet applications and find not like now it sounds like a dating service it's not a dating service. I'm just saying I don't know I don't know where I've gone with this now. But I'm just saying if people listen to this and they do know me already and they and they didn't realise that I host dinner parties sometimes and they'd like me to then uh then drop me a Facebook message and I will. And it won't necessarily have to be a frittata I can do starch as well. I can cook anything. I've I've done a roast <laughs> a couple of Christmases ago. I did I did Christmas dinner. Last year Tanya did Christmas dinner and everybody said hers was nicer, but that's okay.
1: Who's Tanya?
0: <laughs> oh, uh, Tanya's my housemate. Tanya's my housemate. She's one of one of my housemates. She did Christmas dinner last year. Don't know who's gonna do it this year. Probably, probably well, probably Jen or Emma. Can't be me and Tanya, me or Tanya. We've done it. This has got very <laughs> very specific and off topic, hasn't it? Like I think it's nice. I think it's painting a lovely picture, but um. I mean I, I don't know what people what the, the, the majority of your audience listens for I don't know whether they listen for kind of insights into comedy the world of comedy or just for kind of charming anecdotes about Christmas dinners um, there's something for everyone in this interview something for both audience types how much do you cut out of these interviews usually? <laughs> nothing all this will be in oh good good I'm glad I'm glad did I answer the question? <laughs> I can't remember.
1: And you've performed at Edinburgh for several years. In 2012, you took up your first show, which was 45 Minutes, and you had guests. And that was a character that you used to perform called Matt Fisher. And the show was called Uber Person. And then last year, you performed Jos Norris Has Gone Missing, which also featured other characters. So, what has been your experience of the Edinburgh Festival so far?
0: Uh, it's good, isn't it? It's good Edinburgh. It's really nice. Um, no, it's it's great. I I I first did. Uh, I I I've been doing the the whole open mic thing for like six months, and then my brother, who is a theatre guy, said, "Why don't you put on a one man show?" And in in comedy terms, I think that was mad. That I was like, "Yeah, I'll put on an hour after six months." But in, I was coming at it from his point of view of like, oh, "I'm just going to put on a theatre show." Uh, so I did that as a one off. And we're sort of thinking about, oh, maybe I'll take it to Edinburgh. And then everybody said, yeah, do that, do that. Uh, and essentially, I think that Edinburgh's great in terms of... I think the best thing you get out of it is 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 people. That's been the biggest thing that I've got out of it in terms of the the first year I went up. I was still very new, uh, and I still didn't really know what I was doing, and I was just sort of trying my best to work out what I wanted to do comedy-wise and where where I was going. And then while I was there... I met all the the weirdos bunch that I now do a lot of stuff with. Uh, and they've become a real kind of community of people that I find really kind of exciting to work with and really fun to actually kind of develop things with them. And and that all came out of the fact that uh, John got them down to see my show and they, they you sort of find like-minded people in Edinburgh. You watch a show... Well, I think it's, it's that when you see somebody do a whole hour-long thing or a whole show that they've developed, you really get to see actually what they want to do comedy wise when you see somebody do a five minute spot or a 10 minute spot you see something that they've sort of really tried to kind of hone into something quick and and immediately accessible that people will get which means you're not always necessarily getting really what they want to say uh but then when you watch a whole hour you see like right this is who that person is comedy wise so i think suddenly in edinburgh you find all these people where you really get on their wavelength and you understand them Uh, and that's happened both times i went up like last year i met a whole bunch of people a whole sort of new communities of people that you really sort of want to work with and are excited by um and also there's just something really nice about about having that as a as a goal and as a, a project that you're working on and then you do it for a whole month like it's sort of it's exhausting but it's nice like the rest of the time comedy is this thing that you sort of try and do as much as you can and then you try and balance it with other life things and and you just sort of try and keep keep your foot in it and keep working at it as best you can while doing the rest of your life and then suddenly you're given a month where you say right, that is it for this month there is nothing else, just do that and that's a really reward like it's, it's horrible at times I broke down crying a lot both times uh, and just because of the stress and the hassle of trying to and doing the same hour every day for a month is is difficult, but it's such a, a rewarding thing to be able to to do it for that for that length of time. It's really nice.
1: And how did you find performing on the Free Fringe?
0: I I like it. I I think. Um, uh, Obviously, sort of venue-wise, it's tricky because the free like so many people apply to the free fringe because it's such a great kind of wide open platform for everybody that it means they, there's this pressure for them to provide as many venues as possible. And like I've had an amazing time both times I've gone up, but it does mean that there are inevitably sort of certain compromises you have to make. Like uh, the first year, I was a bit out of the way. I was kind of on the, on the other side of town.
1: The Phoenix. Yeah, yeah, I was
0: right. I was about half an hour away from anywhere that you might consider central. And then last year, I was in a venue that had a, a bar in it. So you had people in there just sort of having a drink while you're doing the show.
1: The Blind Poet.
0: The Blind Poet. Uh, so, but you know, it's it's sort of inevitable with Free Fringe and, and very possibly with Paid Fringe as well, I don't know. But it's, it's sort of inevitable that you have a lot of compromises that you make venue-wise. But I think the challenge with that is just to try and turn that into a positive and try and say, right, well, how do I get the best from this? So I just, the first year when I was a long way out of the way, I just, I just killed myself flyering. And I thought, well, that's no, there's going to be no passing traffic. And it was at midnight. Like, nobody's going to be there at midnight. So just every day I spent about three or four hours wandering around the same bits and just trying to really talk to people, and sat down. I spent a while flying seagulls because I thought that was a, an interesting way of getting attention. And in hindsight, I, I, I think I just I think I just went mad. I think I just really lost it. But I just ran around Princess Street Gardens with a flyer, chasing seagulls and going free free comedy. And then every now and again, somebody would find that funny and come up to me and go, "Oh, what is it?" And then I'd I'd tell them. Uh, so that year, I, I just thought, yeah, I I'd, I'd just have to really go all out with the flying. That's the way to combat that problem. And then. Last year with with the bar, you just sort of you you come up with with new ways of trying to combat the fact that there are people in the corners having having drinks. And again, I think my way of conversing it was just go over and chat to them. Like before the show, I just tried to make them to ingratiate them and really make them care about the fact that a show was about to happen. They didn't always. Sometimes they went, "We don't care. We're here for a drink. We'll have our drink." And sometimes that was a thing you had to deal with. And other times they went, "Oh, this this boys seems nice. We'll we'll be quiet and watch his show, and maybe we'll even enjoy it." Sometimes they did. <laughs> Uh, so I think yeah, I think free fringe inevitably throws things at you that you have to deal with because you're in these venues that that aren't necessarily built to be performance spaces. But you just try and turn it into a positive thing. And also, there's the the fact that it's that bit easier to kind of get an audience in terms of just you you grab someone, and drag them in. I did that a lot last year. If the
1: grabbing people and dragging them in.
0: <laughs> yeah, and only afterwards did I think like that's kind of. Unethical, of, like I've removed, I've removed the element of choice there completely. <laughs> but I did use. There were a few performances last year where about five minutes before, I'd look at the audience and I'd be like, mm, "This is alright, but it's a bit, it's a bit small." And I was in a, I was in a lycra morph suit at the time. I started the show in this morph suit with a cape and a little fisherman's hat. So for some reason, I felt like I could get away with this because I already looked silly. So I thought if there weren't enough people, I'd just run outside and grab two people I saw and just would go, "Come in," <laughs> and then run in. And then drag them in and sit them down. And weirdly, it worked. Like Edinburgh, This is the nice thing about Edinburgh. People are just sort of wandering around looking for things to do. People are just going, like, what shall I do now for the next hour? didn't always work. Like A lot of the time people were just like really annoyed. <laughs> really, really upset about it. At the idea that I would just go, yep, yeah, you, you'll do. But sometimes people will go, oh, I was, I was looking for something to do. And you gave me something to do and I had fun, thanks. So I think that's, that's another nice thing about Free Fringe. You can do that. You can just go, right, you. It's different with paid fringe. It's very difficult to go, right, you, £10, get in. I think you've got to be slightly more courteous with uh, with paid fringe. Free fringe, you can be as rude as you like because they've lost nothing. If they resent it, they just won't donate. It's fine, it's all right.
1: And how did you find the media and publicity side of performing a show on the Free Fringe?
0: I found, obviously, everybody doing Free Fringe shows is going to have a different experience. Some people might be able to get loads of... A a lot of it will be dependent on what time they're on and where they're on and that kind of thing. The first year, I got I got one review out of it, which was really nice. I was really pleased with that because I didn't really know what I was doing. I was very new. Uh, So I just thought, cool, that's nice. Uh, Last year, I found it quite tricky, not much... uh, uh, press were coming in So about halfway through <laughs> I staged this uh, Sort of attempt at a publicity stunt Where I I challenged Every single reviewer in Edinburgh To a duel on top of Calton Hill On the last day of the Fringe Unless they came to review my show And it's been pointed out to me since That doing a publicity stunt The day after the Fringe has <laughs> is finished is, uh, is not the most <laughs> intelligent way of going about it But I thought well maybe it will do something So I, I did that and then uh, two people did come and review it and then just went, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> that was their review. They went, yeah, it's fine. It's, it's fine. Uh, and then on the last day, I went and sat on top of Calton Hill. And one guy arrived who'd been in my audience and said, uh, is, it, is it happening? Uh, and I hit him with a sponge and then ran off. <laughs> that was it. That was the deal. <laughs> no no press turned up. But, um, but I think there is this tricky thing because obviously like, there's only a certain number of press in Edinburgh and like and they and there are thousands of shows and every single one of them is writing to them saying please come and come and see this so they have to be selective in terms of what they're seeing they have to base that on what time it's on and where it's on uh and to a certain extent they probably have to base it on what they know about the comedian as well you know it's probably difficult to to prioritize something that they don't know about and that's fair they have to put in these prioritizing things i think last year because the free fringe sort of had a lot of victories last year. It might start to change, and and maybe press will be more kind of immediately amenable to the idea of going to to see free fringe shows. They go and see a lot. I'm not saying that like free fringe shows don't get coverage. They get a lot, but I think still, I've I've been told that I think a lot of press like the idea that they can reserve a ticket. I don't think they like the idea that they can go to a free show and and possibly not be able to get in. So if they've put that time aside. And then they get there, and they can't get in. I think that's a a big turn off for a lot of press people. So I think that's one reason why why paid shows seem to get more more kind of press coverage. I think there are lots of things to do with it, but I think gradually it will change, and and eventually every every show will get as much attention as others. Uh, I mean, the the heroes thing is a is another good one in terms of uh, Bob Slayer's heroes of fringe uh, scheme program. Venue, whatever you would call it, what what would you call it? System, model, model. Uh, that's where you can you can buy a ticket in advance if you if you want one, or you can turn up and and pay what you want and have a ticket. So that's a way of sort of doing a free show, but still having that element that press can book a comp and come in and that kind of thing. So I think um, I think I think there has been sort of difficulty getting press to prioritise free fringe, but it might it might change. It might it might not. Who can say?
1: And you were saying that in your first year when you went up to Edinburgh, you met a lot of the comedians who perform as part of Weirdos. And since then, you've been performing a lot with them. But the style of shows that you perform are a lot more weird to the characters or stand-up that you perform. So is there a genre within comedy that you prefer the most?
0: I don't know, really. I, I think uh, there's this whole sort of debate about like what is mainstream comedy and what is alternative comedy and i uh, if that, that and that's a phrase that's really weird because what does it mean does it really mean anything and i was talking to sophie Hagen about this the other day because she was saying and she hit on a really interesting definition that i really liked because she said that in in denmark she said there's no alternative comedy she said she she learned everything there about really researching how you write a joke and all the kind of the logic and the the structure of how comedy works and then came here And there was the sort of the alternative comedy scene, whatever that is. And she said she was fascinated by it and has been trying to work out what it is. Uh, And she said the nearest thing she could get to a definition is that mainstream comedy... I'm doing air quotes there, which you can't see because both terms are are difficult in that they don't really mean much. But she said mainstream comedy, she says, uh, she thinks is based on logic and thought and alternative comedy is based on sort of feeling and impulse. So I think... And I think that's a really interesting distinction in that it doesn't boil it down to one is relatable, observational stuff and one is mad, silly, surreal things. I don't think that's that much of a difference. So I, I think, I mean, the show I'm writing at the moment for Edinburgh is very much mostly quite a conventional stand up show. And it's it's about me talking about girls and that mostly it's stories about girls uh, and then like you say when i do sort of weirdo stuff it's a really nice opportunity to just do stuff that's much stupider and that comes out of really daft places and goes to stupid areas and involves throwing lots of water around or whatever we feel like it cream anything uh we don't we've only done that once you pulled a face we only done that once uh but i think the kind of the 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 common point in all this and the reason why it's a group that i really get on with along with a few other sort of groups of comedians that i really enjoy working with is that it all feels very much that it comes out of feelings and impulses and things,
1: and love for the craft of it.
0: Yes, also, also. I mean, but but I think it's possible to to have a lot of love for the craft while without necessarily being that kind of impulsy kind of comedian, while being a very logical one and one who really kind of structures their jokes and things. But I do think, yeah, I think there's a huge amount of kind of love of just being part of this performance thing and being present with the audience and being in that moment and creating something. So all the stories that are in my show aren't stories that I've sat down and tried to write and put punchlines into. they sort of turned into that out of just performing them a lot and working out where the funny bits are. But they've all come from just a desire to tell a story through my perception of it, through my understanding of it. And it kind of comes out in a certain way. So I think that's what, uh, it, was, it was actually Mark Stevenson last year. Uh, I was doing a character show, and it was all... In hindsight, It's it, it was a show that I think was me trying really hard to go, this is wacky comedy, this is mad, crazy stuff. And I liked it, but it's, it, it's stuff now that I, I feel I'm doing a different thing now. Uh, because uh, Mark Stevenson said to me during Edinburgh last year that... You know, you don't have to force the idea of being a, a wacky, weird comedian. You can just talk as yourself, and if you have a certain kind of brain, then it will turn, it will come out strange, and it will come out through your own particular kind of worldview. But in a way that's actually really understandable and people really relate to it. So you get some people in Weirdos who are just mad, kind of brilliant ideas people, like Adam Larter, who runs it, is just great at these completely off ball, off ball, Odd ball off the wall ideas. And then you have people like Ali Bryce who are great kind of character comics and they do these brilliant kind of cartoonish uh, characters uh, and are very good at that. And then you have people like Mark who, who, who just sort of tell stories about themselves but do it in this really nice kind of offbeat way where you get a sense of their, their worldview through it. So at the moment I'm really enjoying doing that, just trying to sort of isolate me and talk through through that mindset but I love doing both I love messing around and doing voices and running about in an outfit and I love talking about myself and trying to make that into a funny proposition but I think they all come from the same place
1: and you also MC a lot so how have you found that differs to performing stand-up as part of a bill
0: I think MCing weirdly is is closer to the to the idea of doing your own show in that same thing that I was saying when you're doing a a set as part of a, of a bill you've got to really kind of deliver humor quickly and you and it's got to you know you've got to condense it all into that thing and then when you're doing a longer show you have more time to sort of put a bit of your character into it and talk to people and make it more personal i think that's similar with emceeing in the 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 idea is not that they are there to see you do your material you can do it if you find a way of sort of working into it but i think it's a nice opportunity to just kind of play with with the audience a bit more, I think that's the nice thing about emceeing, is that you can do your routines, but you can also just uh, the main thing is just creating an atmosphere and and maintaining that atmosphere and playing it in a way that the audience receives it well and enjoys it. So it's much less about getting your idea out; it's much more about trying to be on a level with them, and then maybe doing some stuff for them if 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 they're on the right wavelength for it, or just playing a game or chatting to them whatever you want to you want to do so i think I, I think it's a much sort of freer thing to do um the difference obviously is that like you you get less of a sense of oh yeah i'm really really nailing that bit you know if it, if you're looking to really kind of hone stuff then it's less of a place for that because the focus isn't on your material it's fo- it's more of the focus on you and the relationship you have with the audience i think but also it's not it's just it's just room to play i think
1: and when you perform on your own, do you prefer performing as a character comedian or stand-up?
0: I I'm really enjoying uh, doing stuff as myself at the moment, and I don't know if this will, if 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 that will be it from now on. That I'll just do that, or if I'll go back to doing character stuff. But I found recently, I did uh, I came up with a new routine, right? That was me in in a shark outfit, doing a <laughs> yeah yeah, uh, doing a eulogy. There's a comedian called Bridie Lee Kennedy who has just had to go back to Australia for a bit. And we did a sort of a goodbye gig for her. Uh, So I went dressed as a shark and uh, gave a eulogy for Bridie at her funeral playing the shark that ate her. That was the idea. Uh, And it it got a huge response at that gig because it was tailored to that gig. And then I did it at ACMS, which is the Alternative Comedy Memorial Society. It's this big kind of cult. Alternative comedy night, and they go very much for very silly ideas. So there, it got a, a lovely response as well. Then I did it a third time, a, an act, a sort of a, a regular gig, uh, and it was awful, absolutely awful. And I thought, that's weird. It's gone really well the last two times. Uh, did it a fourth time, and then thought, oh, it's terrible. That's that's why. Uh, so I think I'm increasingly just getting to the point where I. I don't don't think my heart is in it as much, the character stuff anymore, which isn't to say that I don't like doing stupid things. I really like being an idiot on stage as me, but I no longer feel that tied to the idea of going, hello, I am this character. This is what I'm about, and I'm going to do some stuff as that. I haven't done that in a while now. And I might go back to it. It might be that this is just sort of what I'm working on at the moment is this one thing, and then I'll find a new way of working next year or something. I don't know. But at the moment, I'm very much enjoying just... Just chatting as yourself and trying to... Either trying to give the audience a way into your mind and try and let them enjoy it, or just presenting it as something completely alien that they don't identify with at all. It's usually one or the other. I find people either go like, oh yeah, I I get that, that's sweet. Or people just go, that's bizarre, I don't understand what you're talking about, but it's sort of funny that you're this odd creature. Um, But I think it's nicer when it... I find it nicer when I feel like I am just talking about myself whatever that might be. Not necessarily in terms of telling a a true story. It doesn't always have to be this is something from my life, but just doing something that is honestly my brain and not some fiction that I've come up with.
1: And you perform all around the UK, including both comedy clubs and also at festivals. So how have you found that different audiences around the country react to your comedy?
0: Um, I think it's... I Well... I got in trouble recently. Should I talk about this? Just as a, as another opportunity to clear up a, a career-related thing. I, I got in trouble recently for a thing. I, I did the Leicester Comedy Festival, I went up and did Leicester. Um, and in order to try and build up a bit of attention for it, I wrote a little blog post on Chortle, as you do, correspondence piece, uh, which every, every point I was trying to make in that article I still think is a valid point but it was one of the worst written things i've ever done and ended up uh, annoying a huge number of comedians from all around the country because i accidentally implied that i didn't think there was any good alternative comedy outside of london which isn't the case i was talking about my family uh, and the fact that they don't really know much about comedy because they live in a very small village so they don't see they don't see any live comedy and uh, and what they see on tv is often sort of the more kind of mainstream side of things uh so that's the point I was trying to make, and I, I accidentally said outside of London nobody knows anything about comedy, and then received a lot of uh, justifiably annoyed uh, hate mail for implying things. Um, but to be honest, like I have, so I do gig around the country, so I'm annoyed that that's a, a generalisation I made because it was a thoughtless thing to do. But the thing is, audiences around the country aren't aren't that different. Like within London, you're gonna get audiences that really go for something very stupid and you're going to get audiences that are really kind of cold and turned off to it and that's also the case all around the place like i i did a gig in Fordingbridge last year and i was going out it was a mirth control gig which is a very it's a big kind of quite sort of commercial corporate gig booker and I think the audiences tend to go for sort of proper stand-up, like like what they see on telly and that kind of thing. I went there going to do this new character routine that I was doing that was a, a an Irish superhero in a morph suit, and I was there with sort of proper comedians that had their their routines and very sort of polished, slick stuff. And I went there thinking, oh, this is gonna be this is gonna be awful, uh, but ev- everybody went down brilliantly. Like it was a really open-minded audience. Like I think it's easy to assume that in in smaller Towns and things, they're only going to want their uh, their sort of mainstream TV up But I think people all around the country are just really open to the idea of something that's funny, and they'll really enjoy that, whatever it is. So I mean, wherever you go, you're going to get some people that really go for one thing, and other people that really don't. That's the case everywhere. I do think that what often happens in uh, in smaller towns is that you you tend to get audiences that are much more invested. Uh, in the they might only have one comedy club a month so when they go there it's their big night out and they might have spent money on it and they and it's their sort of their opportunity to see comedy whereas in london people see it all the time oh, i'm making this generalization again now but you know i think i think often you will get crowds that that really kind of care about it because it's their one night out of, for, to see comedy of the month or whatever but i think ultimately wherever you go you're going to get audiences that love it and really care about it and you're still going to get audiences that don't care either like i've done out of town gigs where people have just sort of sat there and been really bored and and vice versa i think everywhere it's a rich tapestry in it the whole country all around the country i'd say all around the country there are people who like comedy but also all around the country i think there are people who don't and that's potluck really it's just potluck if you're lucky you'll have a nice audience
1: and you've performed in all different types of venues around the u k as well, so do you have a specific type of venue that you prefer performing in the most?
0: Um.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> i I think just just the type of venue sort of slightly changes the nature of the performance, and that's never necessarily. A bad thing. I did, um, so this show that I'm sort of previewing at the moment, I did it in the Salisbury Arts Centre the other week and it was in a big sort of theatre space with big lights, stage, seats, proper kind of theatre space and that kind of changed the nature of the show because suddenly it felt much more slick and it felt more professional because you're in that setting and then I've done it other times where it's in a room above a pub and it becomes inherently more kind of shambling and it sort of lurches from one bit to another. Not necessarily like shambling and lurches aren't don't sound like good words in relation to comedy. But I mean that in a good way in that it takes on this kind of it, it, sort of endearing amateurish quality and people just kind of follow it along and it becomes much sillier. I think both versions of, of that sh- same show are really fun and are really interesting to to see. So I, I don't know which I prefer. There's, there is something nice about being on a proper stage in a theatre with with the lights and everything. But what you do lose sometimes is the ability to really kind of connect with an audience and like look them in the eye and go and go over to them and talk to them and interact with them. Uh, so I think whatever happens, it, it it just it changes the nature of what you're going to do. I think I think my favourite is I don't know the uh i mean we'll cut out this pause while i'm thinking obviously you won't you're going to keep this in i think they're all i think they're all great i mean the worst is uh, is a space that just um isn't isn't made for comedy and that and that it's a real struggle to do uh although sometimes you can get real kind of surprises out of that kind of thing but sometimes you will do something i did i did, a, I, did a, I did the show in a church in february and it felt obscene it's not an obscene show. Like it's fine. It's just me being an idiot talking about girls and going, "Oh, I'm not very good with girls." But suddenly, when you when you're on an altar, in a, in a dress, because I was wearing a dress at the time, I've stopped doing that. Uh, it 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 feels uh, it feels inappropriate all of a sudden. I thought, oh, "This is weird." Uh, so I think yeah, spaces where there's not supposed to be comedy can sometimes be be difficult. But then again, that's just another that's just another thing to to try and deal with as a as a performer to go okay how am i going to make it work for this space i'll i up perform anywhere honestly if somebody says can you perform here yeah i'll do it i've i've done it in a living room i did i did comedy in the middle of a a house party which and i mean james o'brien does a gig called semi detached comedy which is a house party that is a comedy gig that's fine that wasn't what this was it was genuinely just an actual house party with me doing comedy in the middle of it it was bizarre just in the he stopped the music and went right and now comedy from the award-winning Jos norris and i was like All right i'm not I'm, I'm not award-winning but okay thanks for that and then just did uh did 15 minutes in the middle of a house party everyone was just drinking and smoking around the around the edges six people in the middle watching really enjoying it they, they had a great time everybody else just a bit confused but I, I enjoyed it i relished it any performance space can work if you're open-minded
1: so do you have a favourite type of audience to perform to?
0: <laughs> this is gonna sound like a, an obvious point to make, but I think they've just they've got to want to be there. I think that's the biggest thing. Like I uh sometimes you have you go to gigs and they'll be quite small and there'll only be like four people there and peop and the and the person running it will go, Right, we'll we'll plough ahead, we'll just we won't do an interval, we'll we'll go through it And I always think in that situation it's best just to talk to the audience and say, Do you want to see a comedy night when when with just the four of you cuz sometimes for them that's weird like sometimes as an audience it's really weird to feel like oh I'm kind of trapped here and that's never a good mindset to perform to uh and I think that's I think that's the main thing is they just have to be invested in it and sometimes they will be sometimes you can have four people and they'll go yeah we're really up for just having a fun little quiet intimate comedy night but that I think is the biggest thing that they they want to be there and also I think they've got to be I think they have to go with no assumptions of what of what they're going to see. I think that's good. Which isn't to say that everything should be really surreal and, and completely mad. But I just think an audience should go into everything with the mindset of like, let's, let's just see what we're going to see. Because then there's no judgment as and when it comes. There's no sort of like, oh, that's not what I was expecting. I like an audience that wants to be there and is happy to see whatever it is that's going to happen.
1: And do you have any tips or advice for aspiring comedians?
0: I would say um, aspiring as in like they they haven't done it yet.
1: Aspiring as in they haven't performed yet or they have just started or they're hoping to progress as a comedian or grow in terms of their performance style.
0: My number one tip for an aspiring comedian who hasn't performed yet would be uh, to perform. (laughs) I think they should. I think they should. Uh, I think they should give it a go. <laughs> I think that would be the first step. Um, I think, in general, the biggest thing I've learned in my time doing comedy is I. Uh, I think for 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 a start, just never never be too serious about it. You meet loads of comedians who are really serious, and they go, "Oh, I need to, I need to, that that joke isn't working. I need to make that joke work." And like, "Oh, I need to get an agent. How do I get an agent? I need to get a review." How do oh nobody's taking me seriously? There are loads of comedians with that mindset and they're so serious. And and probably I'm sure there are loads of comedians who've actually done really well out of being very serious and very kind of disciplined. But for me, I've always found just make sure that you are enjoying what you're doing and that you're caring about it, and try really hard to find people that you feel are, are on the same level of really enjoying what they're doing and caring about it and that kind of thing. Uh and and I think everything else sort of follows like it takes time but if you are enjoying what you're doing and caring about it and really believing that you that you want to do it then things work out with it it generally like the the worst mindset is is frustration and and really wanting to be somewhere but 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 always focusing on like why aren't i getting there i always think just look at what you're doing now and make sure you're enjoying it as much as you can and making the best of every opportunity that comes to you and then opportunities will come to you if you have that mindset of, like, care about what you're doing. I also think it's really good to find people who are willing to tell you when you're rubbish. Because, like, again, there are you can do a lot of gigs where, where afterwards, if you've been terrible, there's this horrible feeling where people afterwards just nod at you and go, nice one, mate, you know, and smiles. And actually, when you find people who are, who are willing to say, that was awful, this, 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 and then that means then when another time when they tell you, yeah, that was great, well done, you know that they actually care about what you've done and that they're invested in it and they want to see you improve. I think there's there's a lot of... I mean, I'm the same probably. There's probably, like, you know, if you don't know a comedian very well, then obviously you're not going to go, phew, you were rubbish. That's a really horrible thing to do. But I think it's easy to sort of... Just try and avoid criticism as much as possible. I think it's good to find people that care enough about your stuff to to help you with it. So I think find a a group of people that you really work well with and that you care about, and then make sure you care about what you're doing and you're enjoying it and don't be too serious and don't Don't set too many specific goals. Just say, "I want to keep getting better and keep improving and keep learning. Set that as your goal, and that'll happen if you start setting specific like I need to have achieved this by this stage and this by this stage, then uh, I think it's a I think it's a t- too disciplined a mindset. That said, there are probably loads of people who've taken the opposite path, but that's that's the path I would recommend. If you want to be the next Charles Norris, <laughs> listeners, that's um, that's what I'd suggest.
1: And you were saying that you studied English literature at UEA. So do you have any tips or advice for students? Uh,
0: Relating to comedy or just generally about being a student? Both. Okay. Um, I'd say, right, comedy-wise, I'd say that that uni is a great opportunity to to start doing comedy. Because like I said, you're surrounded by friends. Most of the gigs you're going to do are going to be in front of friends. And that gives you this great sense of working out how much you care about it before it needs to be difficult so i think if you if you think you're interested in the idea of comedy do it at uni and find the comedy society or whatever uh and and try and get involved in that and uh, separate from comedy i think that that uni is just a really nice opportunity to learn a huge amount about you and to meet people and to change the way your brain work. like when I was a basically I was 18 and I was very nervous and shy and incredibly awkward and annoying uh you can ask any school friend they will, they will testify to this I was really annoying and awkward and I wanted to be a serious playwright and then by the time I came out of it I wanted to be a comedian and I think I was quite easygoing and and fun or more fun anyway uh and I think it's just Like for me, the the, the degree is one thing and you work really hard on that and that's an important thing. But it was also like, if I'm honest, I haven't really used it. Like none, none of the jobs I've had since and the comedy hasn't called for me to have a degree. It's helped. It's helped my argumentative powers and my writing and just my sense of logic or whatever. I don't know. It's probably done loads to that. But it's also just a nice opportunity to kind of meet so many different people. You'll never meet as many people. Well, you might. <laughs> you might. <laughs> I don't know what you might do in your life, but uh, it's uh, you'll meet so many different people who do so many different things. And I think it's a nice opportunity to just do everything that you can in three years, because it's rare that you'll have a three-year period where so many d- different opportunities are open to you. So meet everyone, make some friends, have fun. Above all, don't don't be one of those people who just works all the time at uni. Have fun, and uh, and and find yourself, because you will. <laughs> I mean, you're not like you won't you won't come out and you'll have found yourself and and you're done. You'll keep learning, but uh, but it, it, you'll you'll learn stuff. You'll learn stuff about yourself. Ah, that's a horrible answer, isn't it? Find yourself, but I mean that. I did, <laughs> kind of, a bit. Yeah, work, work but do work hard. <laughs> like, do work. Like, don't don't then, you know. I, yeah, you want to do well. You want to do well, guys. But uh, but you also want to have fun and you want to learn about yourself. That's that's what I think about uni. It was fun though, wasn't it? Uni, a lovely time. It's brilliant.
1: Did you host a lot of dinner parties?
0: Uh, I didn't actually. I I I couldn't really. I, in second year, I right, I decided I had to cook because in f- right first year all I cooked for myself was spaghetti and sausages and mayonnaise. Horrible, absolutely horrible. And then second year I was bored and I needed to cook, and I uh, and I went to the cupboard, and I thought, I'll just try and make something out of what I've got, and I had bread and butter with fried eggs and peas and gravy. To this day, I've never eaten anything more unpleasant, and after that, I thought, right, I've got to learn to cook. So at uni, I didn't host many dinner parties because they would have been a disaster, and I would never have seen anybody again. But I went to a dinner party once in third year, and there was gin and salmon on croup, and suddenly, I thought, this this is what I want to to do. I want to host I want to host nice nice food something about sitting in a house eating nice food with people isn't there something about that it's really good there's a reason why people do it it's because it's nice so no I didn't host many dinner parties I hosted a lot of uh, parties Uh no I went to a lot I didn't host many I hosted one particularly memorable one 2009 uh why was it memorable? Why have I said that? Well, I, I remember it. I think it's just because I took a lot of photos, so I've got a lot of evidence of it. But you know, yeah, party central, uni, all yeah, a lot of fun. A lot of fun was had. I still have parties now. I'm having one. I'm having one for my birthday in a couple of weeks. Not every listener is invited, <laughs> but yeah, still, I still do it. You have, you have less opportunity to host parties as you get older, don't you? But at uni there'd be a party every week every Friday people would go should we go out that doesn't happen anymore maybe once every couple of months people go should we go out and when you do it's more nostalgic than it was like when you go out at uni you just go yeah yeah and you rave it up sorry I just ate the microphone and you can't see this but I'm doing a sort of a ravey a ravey dance listeners Uh, and you just you know you just have a wild time but these days when you go out maybe I'm just speaking for myself now that I'm getting older, but you, I think you spend a lot of time thinking, "Yeah, I used to, I used to go out," <laughs> and then uh, and yeah, there's a lot of reminiscing. That's I think the chief the chief two activities that are done in in clubs or pubs or bars are genuine fun and reminiscing. <laughs> Those are the two things people do. But re- the reminiscing is fun too, though. Like you can have fun while you're reminiscing. But for instance. Now, if I go out, I might have a cocktail, and while I'm enjoying having that cocktail, there's also a part of me that's going, "Yeah, I remember that other cocktail from 2009. Yeah, that's kind of how it works now." <laughs> clubbing, I don't go clubbing very often anymore. Does it show? <laughs> it's because it's awful. Why would you go? It's very noisy. I, that's why I like dinner parties. You can chat. I've come full circle in this within this one answer. <laughs> I've said like, "Yeah, partying's great." Yeah, I remember when I used to party. Yeah, I don't party very much anymore, but I remember when I used to party. Oh, I hate partying. That was my answer. (laughs) What a hypocrite. But yeah, I'll host dinner parties all the time. My favourite thing to do is to go round to a friend's house with a a nice bottle of gin and just sit and have have some drinks and a chat. That's lovely. Maybe a board game will be played... (laughs) I say maybe. It will. If I'm there, it will. We'll play Carcassonne or Settlers of Catan and, um, and drink gin. And then I'll go home and then the next day I'll do a gig or something. That's my life. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? Lovely. You've held this microphone in my mouth for a long time. It's like you're waiting. It's like you think there's something else coming and I'm about to come out with some really universal truth for students. But I I don't think I don't think
1: I. No, we passed this student yeah. question ages ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think
0: it's now just become uh, a very just a weird kind of uh, exploration of my social life. Really, ah, it's odd. It's nice though. It's nice. Go and see a lot of music gigs. Going to see Yes next week. Saw uh, Timber Tombra last week. Do you know them? They're good. And in October, Kate Bush. Oh no, September. Sorry, September, Kate Bush. I'm going on my own, but I don't mind. So that's, that's, that's specifically not a social occasion, actually. I've just realised that's a specific example of me not doing something sociable. Just me on my own watching Kate Bush. But, oh, I'll have a lovely time. This has ended quite sadly, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you want to hear a theory I came up with about comedy? But I was thinking, I think comedy is an evolutionary thing. Because you see how in, in your life, like you don't just laugh at comedy, you laugh at your life as well. Like you, used to, you might see uh, like a while ago. I saw a pigeon fall out of a tree. I pissed myself. It's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. It's a pigeon. It wasn't. It wasn't dead. It just lost its footing, and couldn't work out how to fly in time. It so it just fell out of a tree onto the floor and then got up and went oh! and then and then wandered off. It was it was hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. So what I'm saying, like humans can see things. And laugh at it, and it's funny, and you fu- and uh, we've worked out how to do that. Dogs don't. I've never seen a dog crack up, like really crack up at something. But, and I was following this thought process through. I've also never seen a dog comedian. And I think <laughs> I think it's related. Oh yeah, right. I have seen a gorilla laugh. I've seen videos of gorillas going. <laughs> Like, they'll see, like, a gorilla fall over or something, and then the other gorilla goes, I've seen videos of that. So And gorillas are further up the evolutionary chain than dogs. And we laugh. And I think there's something... The the further along you get in terms of evolving, I think you evolve an ability to go, this is silly. I think that's an evil... You work out, your brain suddenly evolves, evolves, evolves. Tools, opposable thumbs, civilization. Uh, structure, thought, sen- sentience. This is silly. That's the next step. It's suddenly, you go. Some stuff is silly. I'm going to laugh at it. Gorillas have got it. We've got it. Mice don't. Have you ever seen a mouse laugh? But I really, I've been, I've been developing this theory, and I've been trying to. I was, I was googling laughing animals. Kookaburras, I don't think laugh. I watched a video of a kookaburra, and I think it sounds like a laugh, but I think it's actually, they're actually screaming. Or they're just going, yeah, they're just going like, Ah! 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 Which, which is funny. Like, it's inherently funny that that's what kookaburra is. But I think basically they just stood on branch and go, Ah! 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 So they're not, they, 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 they don't have humour. But I think hyenas do. I watched some videos of hyenas laughing and that looked like real laughter. I thought I think that hyena actually is really having a great time. So I don't know what it is that hyenas have evolved to have humour, but dogs haven't. Because a hyena is a is a dog. But I can't think of any other laughing animals, can you? The laughing cow is fictional, doesn't count. Cows real cows don't laugh. I've tried I've tried to amuse a cow. I've played saxophone at it true story cornwall 2010 played saxophone at a cow to try and make it laugh (laughs) and it didn't it just stared at me it was like that stag at richmond park again this cow just looking at me with my saxophone nothing cows don't laugh gorillas do (laughs) that's my rap song